Hello. Welcome to ATC Office Hours. Today, I have a special guest. It is Jackie Guevara from Michigan State University. She is a PhD student there. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks for joining me on ATC Office Hours. And thank you for inviting me. I'm so honored to be here. And I am very interested to have a talk with you today because you did research about MLSN. And MLSN is a modern method for soil test interpretation. It is the minimum levels for sustainable nutrition. And it's something that I helped to develop together with Larry Stoll and Wendy Galerter from Pace Turf. And yet it's something that we, we kind of devised that by theory, by logic. We didn't really do any field testing of it. And there hasn't been a huge amount of research about it. And you did this really cool project for your master's thesis that I wanted to talk with you about and understand more about that experiment and, and hear from you how it went. And, and yeah, I mean, let's, let's, and I, I will say this is a live stream. I see there are some people in the chat. Uh, if you have any questions for me or Jackie, just, uh, ask us and uh, we will try to answer those questions. So if there's enough chats uh, or, or comments, I will put those up on the screen and we will talk about those things. So let's get started, Jackie. You, your thesis was titled Effects of Different Soil Testing Philosophies on Creeping Bentgrass and Annual Bluegrass Putting Greens. And you started that in 2018, 2019? 2019, yes. So you, is that when you went to Michigan State? Yes, that's, yeah, that's, that's when I went to the Michigan, to Michigan State for my master's. And you, when we read about research projects, the way that science communication works, the way that the writing goes, we tend to write it out like it was all a foregone conclusion. But we like, like, here's how we planned the experiment. Here's what we did. Here's, here's what the results were. Um, but some of the stories about how the experiment got started, whose idea was it? What was the, what was the reason why that particular project was chosen? That often doesn't make it into the thesis or into the articles that we write about it. And I'm curious, is this something that you had the idea to do it or your advisor? Was it Dr. Kevin Frank? Uh, yeah. And was that something that he said, okay, I've got this project ready to go. Would you be able to do this as your thesis? Um, or was it a joint idea of, of trying to come up with something? Could you describe for me a little bit about how you came up with the start, the concept of doing this experiment? So um, this experiment, it's a joint idea between me and um, Dr. Kevin Frank. So when I um, went to my master's, I asked him, so oh, Dr. Frank, do you have a, do you have like a current project I can work on? 
and then he asked me, "Oh, you can you can try and do your own, and we can you know we can talk about it." And then he mentioned about MLS, and he asked me, "Do you know MLS?" Because he knew about it. And then I told him, "Oh, during my internship, you know, back in the Philippines, we use MLS in our golf course, so I'm re- uh, yeah, I, I know how to use it." Because I'm a soul fertility, you know, my my background is really in soul science. So my superintendent back then, his name is um, um Mr. Storm Lupier, he showed me MLSN, so I used that. So I told Dr. Uh, Dr. Frank, oh yes, I, I I know about it, but I thought during that time everyone uses it because that was the thing that I I'm used to. So I thought mm-hmm. everyone, you know, uses it. And he told me, no, there's a different philosophy here in the U.S. So you can, you know, that, that's how it started. Okay, we can look, you know, we can, we can compute it. We can, we can devise a research plan and we'll see where, 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 where it will go. So that's oh, how wow. It cool. So you'd, you'd used MLSN already with Storm. Hello, Storm. Uh, I, I don't know if Storm's catching this live right now, but I'm sure he'll watch it later. Um, if I if I can guess where he is, I guess he is on the beautiful island of Mauritius, where I am afraid it's about uh, two or three o'clock in the morning. So he's probably sound asleep in Mauritius. But uh, yeah, the MLSN was working well at the country club in the Philippines. That is uh, an all Bermuda grass golf course in a tropical climate. And then you went to Michigan and the test plots that you had to work with there were uh, maintained as a putting green and they were creeping bent grass and poa annua. Is that right? Yeah. And so you, uh, both the, both the sufficiency level of available nutrients or the SLAN method and MLSN, they're both, Technically, I guess we could call them uh, soil soil test interpretation philosophies. And then from that, we move on to make a fertilizer recommendation based on those interpretations. So you looked at um, applying nitrogen only and just skipping phosphorus and potassium. Was that, that was a control treatment, if I yeah. read your thesis correctly. I'll put a link... Uh, in the recorded version of this, in the show notes, in the description, I will put a link to uh, your thesis and to some blog posts that I have about your project. But uh, could you describe to me what the treatments were as you were getting started before you did anything? Um, how, how because some people may not know how experiments work. So you can explain in simple terms how you come up with this type of experiment and what the treatments were. So, yeah, so we had two potting greens. One is pure um, creeping bandgrass, and the other one is a mixed band of full annual and creeping bandgrass. So that was um, 80% full annual and then 20% creeping bandgrass. So there are two potting greens, and then for each potting greens, we divided it. So we use three treatments. One, um, which is doctors to control. We already we only applied N nitrogen. So we use urea, no phosphorus and potassium. Potassium, and then the second treatment is just um, we use the 
fertilizer recommendation based on the MLSN equation. And then the other treatment is fertilizer recommendation based on the SLAN, the, um, the SLAN equation. So it's basically a control, the traditional, which is the SLAN, and then the new, the modern method, um, MLSN. And you put traffic on these so that you had simulated, uh, so they're simulated putting greens. They're mown at a putting green height, and but yeah. they're not actual putting greens that have golfers on them. So did they have simulated traffic also? Yes, I did traffic. So I split each plot into traffic and non-traffic plots. Oh, okay. So you could also look at whether one of them might work well with no traffic, but if actually people are, or if the, if mm -hmm. there's foot traffic or other scuffing or other things that would damage the turf, maybe one would fail. Okay. So you've got, you've got all kinds of things going on. You've got uh, different grass types. You've got different soil test interpretation methods, which then lead to different amounts of fertilizer. And I'm going to show it led to vastly different amounts of fertilizer. And uh, yeah. then you also have traffic. So we've yeah. got that set up. And um, let me show you, I, I was looking at your thesis this morning. I, I read it, I think last September or something when when I saw that it was available. I always enjoy reading theses when, not not every thesis, but when they're on a topic that interests me. So uh, thank you so much for all of your hard work on that because it gave me great pleasure to read it. This morning I was glancing at it again and I, I was reading this. So in that very first year, I'm gonna put this up on the screen. In the very first year, you wrote that based on the May 2019 soil test results, the phosphorus and potassium recommendations in 2019 for the SLAN treatment were four times and four and a half times higher than the MLSN treatment. So using the traditional SLAN method, which is what generally gets recommended in the United States, by universities that was recommending four times as much phosphorus and four and a half times as much potassium. Yes, yeah. During the first year, I was uh, I was surprised as well. Um, so regarding this land, this land equation that I used, so uh, I I I realized that there are different land equations. So for this land equation, this the one they use in they, they use at Michigan State University. So I used their equation and then, yeah, I, I found that out and I was like, okay, we'll see. So at first my, you know, going into this, when I calculated it, okay, I, I'll, I'll put it, you know, I'll, I'll see some difference between the MLS and sand treatment just because of the, the difference in the fertilizer. That was my first thought when I saw those numbers. Yes. I, I had that kind of thought too. So you you went to UPLB, University of the Philippines at Los Banos, uh, which is the premier agriculture university in the Philippines. Um, and you studied soil fertility there. And then you'd done an internship on a golf course in the Philippines. And then you went to get your master's. My background is I 
uh, studied turf grass science or horticulture, and then I went to work as an assistant superintendent. I'd done some internships. I went to work as an assistant superintendent and then as a golf course superintendent before I went back to graduate school at Cornell University. And you mentioned that when you saw how different these treatments were going to be, you had some expectation that there would be a difference in the results. Uh, after you applied those fertilizers. And I will tell you, I had the same thought when I went to Cornell, because as a golf course superintendent, I wasn't using MLSN. This was 22 years ago, 23, 24 years ago. I was just thinking about how can I make the grass as healthy as possible? And I thought that adding more potassium, more calcium, more, uh, more of anything I was thinking was going to make the grass healthier. And when I went to Cornell and started doing my project, which was mostly about potassium fertilizer and soil test interpretation, we had a zero potassium treatment and some moderate low potassium treatments and then some exceedingly high potassium treatments. And I thought that somewhere in there, that potassium was going to have an optimum effect. So I definitely expected that I would see a response from potassium, which is similar to what you mentioned. Well, you I think you were doing a little bit of foreshadowing there because you you mentioned that you expected to see something. What what did you end up seeing in that first year after you had four times as much fertilizer with the slant treatment? No difference in turf grass quality between MLSN and slant treatment. It's so just- so the plots just look the same no matter how much phosphorus or potassium you put. You know, yeah, just I dump and, it a lot. And was it this was uh, was were those phosphorus and potassium treatments spread out through the year, or was it just a big, uh, huge, uh, dumped amount right at the start of the season? So, oh yeah, that's a good question. So uh, for phosphorus, I do bi-weekly application. I, I use like a green grade um, phosphorus fertilizer. I apply it bi-weekly, same, with, same time with urea. You know, when I play my N, I apply my P, and then for my K, I do that once a month. And were, were these uh, liquid or granular applications? So for phosphorus and potassium, it's um, granular. I use the green grade granular. Oh, okay. And and for the urea, was that a liquid or a granular? So I melted down. I applied it full yearly. Okay, nice. That that's something that I've talked about on this. Uh, well, on some of my other shows before, uh, I I think that not everybody in the world knows that you can actually do that and get good results. So I like to mention that a few times that you can actually melt urea and spray it. And that's kind of the default standard way, baseline way to supply nitrogen to find turf. Mm-hmm. Cool. So the nitrogen was every two weeks. The phosphorus was every two weeks. The potassium was monthly. Yeah. So when, when we were talking about those four times as much uh, phosphorus or, or, and four and a half times as much, uh, no, four times as much phosphorus, four and a half times as much potassium, we're talking about um, spread out over the entire season. Yeah, like an and, overall. Okay. And, 
so it didn't matter if it was the 80% POA green or if it was the bent grass green, you didn't see a difference. Mm, and, it, and it didn't matter if you put traffic on it or you didn't put traffic. Yes, that was um, not significant in my stats. Okay, and can you describe to me how you put traffic on it? I've seen machines, I've heard people walk across it. What was your method? So I think it's easier if I show it to you. I'll probably pull it up. Okay, cool. Please, uh, you should be able to share your screen, and then I, I will then enable it to pop it up on to the screen that people can see here. Yeah. Um. Okay. I'm. I see that. I can bring that up on screen. Oh, that's a great picture. Oh, yeah. Can you describe it? Some some people are watching this in, and this will also be released as a podcast. So, could you uh, also describe to people what we're looking at here? So this is a like a roller. So it's a push roller, and then it was modified to put um, we put spikes on those um, on, on that roller, and we put and to. Simulate, you know, the weight. We put a concrete block on it, so it's a roller with spikes wow. on it, and then put a concrete block to make it, you know, simulate a human being. So I did that. Um, six, well, those yeah, six per day. Wow, that is there an engine on that, or you're just pushing that? Yes, I'm pushing that. It's a hundred pound um, traffic simulator. I, yeah, I, I push that every day. It's a workout. So it's funny during field days when I put it out there and people are kind of like, oh, do you push that every day? You know, every, you know, every other day. And I was like, yes, I do that. That's research for you. Wow. That, uh, those, so those had soft, some brand of soft spike that was screwed right into the drum of the roller, and and that's how you did that. Yeah. And that's. Yeah. And that's simulating four hundred and seventy rounds of golf per week. Yeah. Okay. One more thing. You had the control plots. And so those ones got only the urea. They didn't get, they didn't get any phosphorus or any potassium. And how, how did those ones look in year one? Did they look the same also? So yes, for the year one, because it's um, like all of them, like for control, MS and sand. But for um, the control, we can see some purpling from phosphorus deficiency. As I think um, in the latter months of the first year. Okay, so already in the first year, you could see some phosphorus deficiency, but you didn't see anything related to potassium. No. Okay, so so that's good. So it seems like it definitely needed phosphorus fertilizer. Maybe it didn't need any potassium fertilizer. Um, and the traffic didn't have an effect so you, and then that's the first year then you go on to the second year of the experiment which was on the same plots right yeah 
and so then you you soil tested at the end of the first year and then you soil tested again then it snowed the the plots are covered in snow i presume and then you did you test again in the spring of 2020 yes i do for these um for calculation for soil best recommendation okay and do you recall so then you updated it you didn't just put the same treatment that you'd done the previous year you updated it based on what the current soil test levels were and yeah. uh in the second year i think you had something similar in terms of a difference in potassium but the phosphorus treatments now were uh different in the second year yes um for the MLSN treatment the phosphorus kind of like even out for MLSN and Plan, but for potassium, um, the recommendation for stand is still higher, way higher than the MLSN recommendation. So potassium in the second year was a similar uh, amount applied. Phosphorus in the second year, uh, SLAN and MLSN were similar, but MLSN actually recommended a little bit more. Yes. Is that right? Yes, okay. a little bit. Okay. Before we talk about the second year results, we have a comment, a question here from Gufran Ghani, which says he's asking as CEC cation exchange capacity improves over time, do we reduce the frequency of fertilization given that organic matter increases leading to greater microbial activity, hence better bioavailability of nutrients for uptake? We can both uh, answer that. Uh, why don't I? Uh, why don't you answer that first, Jackie? And uh, maybe you can answer that completely. Okay, um, I'll try my best. You're, you're <laughs> the um, master here, so I'll, I'll try my best. So regarding this, it's, um, it's a good question. So do we reduce the frequency? Um, so the thing about fertilization, there's this amount and frequency. So frequency is, we, does really depend on what kind of fertilizer you're applying. Because if you're applying nitrogen, that leaches a lot. So you need to have more you know, light application, light amount, and more frequency to give that. But if you're using phosphorus, which is really binding to the soil, we're probably, um, we'll talk about phosphorus-wise, you know. And phosphorus has a tendency to stay in the soil. So if you have high CSC, meaning having that, you know, it will hold more nutrients, you can just have like less uh, phosphorus application because you have that um, CEC. Um, but as CEC improves, I think the main thing that the CEC does really um, reduce is the amount of fertilizer you're gonna uh, put into it. But frequency, it depends on the kind of fertilizer uh, or kind or what kind of nutrient you're trying to put down to your soil is that is that is that correct or uh, yeah yeah I, I think that is just fine um uh, i would say that the answer is basically yes um in sand-based root zones most of the cation exchange capacity is coming from organic matter so as organic matter increases you get more you get more uh, nutrient storage in the soil and you also get more um, 
microbial activity, more mineralization of nitrogen. So generally, if we just consider growing grass in a pure sand versus growing grass in a soil that uh, has a higher CEC, we should be able to reduce the frequency of fertilizer and we should also be able to reduce the quantity of fertilizer as we get more mineralization and have more of a quantity of nutrients that are plant available in the soil. Thank you for that question. And uh, anybody else that wants to say hi from wherever you're joining us from, from around the world, um, please type that in the chat. Uh, anybody that wants to ask more questions, please do so. And we will be happy to answer them. All right, Jackie, we'll go back to the second year of the experiment. And now we've got that same bank grass, that same poa annua, the same traffic versus no traffic, the same uh, plot that didn't receive potassium in the previous year, did not receive phosphorus in the previous year. And then we've got our SLAN and MLSM fertilizer treatments. What happened in year two? So um, in year two, regarding the um, like the quality, so mm -hmm. and the control plot, the and only plot, they're really got, got getting um, like a lot of purplish color, brownish, and then but for MLSN and land plots, they look, still look pretty much the same. They looked pretty much the same. Um, whether they got traffic or not and just one of them was getting a huge amount of extra potassium which was the yeah. slant so um regarding thing i i misspoke about the traffic so the traffic plot they have lower quality because you know we you know lower color lighter color compared to the non-traffic plot but the the thing that that was not significant was if I'm going to compare the traffic plot of an MLSN treatment compared to a sand treatment, they 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 look the same. And expecting that we will see, you know, more like stress tolerance on that slant plot because of that high K application. That's right. That's that's what people expect. Thank you for clarifying that. I. I was also just kind of speaking very generally without thinking about that detail, but yeah, you're right. The traffic plots would have lower quality, but compared to non-trafficked, but we're, what we're looking at is for all the plots that got trafficked, what's the difference between no phosphorus and potassium, which is the control, the slan treatment, which is the traditional way to do it, and the MLSN way, which is based on MLSN. So that's where there's no difference in quality by adding the extra potassium from the slant treatment. Cool. So you do this for two years. You probably had a couple field days where you showed this and you mentioned you were showing people how you're doing the rolling and stuff. And I guess people got to see with their own eyes that there wasn't a difference. Did that, what was the response of, um, Kevin Frank, and when he saw this, and what was the response of people at the field days and the other graduate students or other people, uh, other turfgrass managers who came and saw this? Did they were they were they surprised also? 
some were surprised, but I think I heard a lot, a lot of people saying, yes, we're putting a lot of fertilizer to, into our genes. So they expected that, you know, they're looking for a lower, they know that we need to have a lower recommendation in our genes. So they expected that in a way, like some of them, they're just waiting for that. I think a lot of people are just waiting for that validation. Okay. Oh, so they have a hunch. They have a mm -hmm. hunch that the grass can handle the traffic and the heat stress and the low mowing heights and everything with without all of this extra p and k and so on they have a hunch about it and they know what the standard recommendations are and then it doesn't surprise them when you do some research that validates that yeah yeah and there's just and now um, they're interested about it. I, I got a lot of questions after war, afterwards because it's kind of like them proving, oh yeah, we're putting a lot of fertilizer. We're using too much fertilizer in our genes is a way to lessen that. So it's something like that. Okay, excellent. Hello, David from Sydney, Australia. We So that's got uh, three continents represented so far uh if anybody else wants to uh check in and say where you're watching us from uh david's in australia i'm in southern thailand right now jackie i believe from that spartans will banner in the background i guess you're in michigan <laughs> so um so you've got the the field days where people see this and you spoke at some conferences about it was was anybody opposed to it or, or try to come up with, uh, with criticisms of how you've done the experiment wrong and you're not really showing that, that MLSN actually works or, or saying, what about this? What about that? Did you think of this? Because usually, uh, when we, usually when we do these types of, uh, experiments, scientists are always quite critical of saying, right, well, well, you, you forgot that what, you know, your pH is wrong. This isn't valid or something. So did, did you hear those kind of criticisms also? So, um, luckily for me, when I, whenever I, um, share this to people, they're pretty much impressed about the new information. There, a lot of people told me, Oh, you have a lot of good information on there. Even on Surf Twitter, after I did my my talk at the M uh, Michigan Surfcraft Foundation conference, a lot of people were kind of like interested about it. Although I I had this like suggestion from um, from other scientists, of course they 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 know it. Um, Doctor Doctor Paul Ricci, like he's mm -hmm. the professor, you know, he's like. He, um, because he has been um, really watching my progress. So the only question he asked is about my my sampling sampling depth because it was pretty it is pretty it was pretty um deep like six inches. Mm -hmm. So he asked me if you do like a three inches or you know have other factor in it like do a three inches because he he asked me like where did you base your sampling depth. So I was like, I based it from the usual, you know, from what I, I learned it, like six inches. And then he told me that, oh, you could also do it by the root, you know, how the root zone depth. So mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay, that's something I need to, you know, I, I know this. I, 
Yeah, that's a very good point from Dr. Riki. Um, and I noticed that also because I saw you, you took the samples to 15 centimeter depth, which is six inches. And I thought, hmm, that's, that's a little bit deep for a putting green because usually uh, we would sample at 7.5 or 10 centimeter depth. But I think that just goes to show that soil testing for turf grass and the recommendations and the interpretation methods are not as standardized as they could be. And the, so we have this problem of all around the world, some people are sampling at a three inch depth, some people are sampling at a four inch depth, some people are sampling at a six inch depth. I've seen some people that sample even deeper, which is inexplicable to me, um, because you get most of the nutrient uptake is happening much closer to the surface. So, so taking a sample to a, a 10 inch depth or something, uh, you know, something 25 centimeters or something like that, it doesn't make sense to me for uh, turf grass on putting greens. And then there's also um, some people would not pay very close attention to the sampling depth and maybe they vary it year by year just based on how deep they think the roots are. That's going to be absolutely um, self-defeating, especially for nutrients like phosphorus or for things like soil pH. They, uh, with everything, we expect there's a gradient in nutrient concentration and a gradient in pH from the soil surface and then down as we get deeper. So it's critical to be able to compare from one sampling event to the next to be very careful about the soil sampling depth. Well, we've got a great uh, geographic uh, um, spread here. We've got Gufram from Pakistan, John from Delaware, Stephen from North Carolina. So yeah, this is good. I guess uh, we just don't, yeah, the, the air, it's a little bit early in Pakistan. So thank you, Gufram, for joining us so early. Um, the, the, um, the standardization of soil test uh, sampling methods and interpretation, uh, so we can compare results and, and compare recommendations from around the world, I think is one of the reasons why I think MLSN can be so useful because we, we have recommended sampling depths and we have a soil test uh, interpretation method that can be applied to any grass anywhere. So this type of um, standardization, I think, can be useful because otherwise everybody's doing it in their own regional way without getting informed by any of the expertise from other locations or failures or successes. So I think uh, because turf grass management is a relatively small industry around the world, but it is a global, it is a global industry, as you can see from the geographic range of people joining us uh, today. And there are uh, people doing this for lawns, for golf, for various types of sport that can be big business. And certainly it's something that's passionate. Uh, you know, it's a passion for a lot of people, whether that's football, whether that's American football, whether it's cricket, whether it is golf, Australian rules, football, whatever, baseball, we have all of these sports. Um, and it, actually Jackie, uh, 
speaking of that, you're actually not working with golf right now. Let's take a slight detour. We're definitely going to come back to MLSN and your master's thesis, but you're now a PhD student after you successfully defended your thesis. And you are working on something really exciting that I'm not sure everybody knows. Um, I'll I'll show your Twitter account. Your Twitter account is at Jack of All Turf. So if you want to follow Jackie on Twitter, you can follow her there. I have, and I have a. Uh, from that, I I think I see that you're working on something pretty exciting related to sport. Can you can you tell us? Oh yeah. So first of all, thank you for plugging my my turf Twitter handle. So yes, for my project that's why I jumped from golf to sportster because I found this great opportunity to be part of the research team for the FIFA World Cup in 2026 which will which will be held in United States Mexico and Canada so it's really a huge project coming up so you're what are you uh, researching uh, for the upcoming World Cup? So, um, right now, we have this, we're, we're, because it's, it's, it's still under the wraps, but what we're doing right now <laughs> is looking at different, yeah, different way of, you know, grass production, so management practices, um, different systems, because, you know, in Europe now, they use, like, artificial fibers or artificial turf, to stabilize the soil, we're also looking into that, and also the maintenance inside the stadium. Because now that the 16 cities or the 16 stadiums are now um, now released to the public, we found out that eight of them will be like an closed stadium. So we need to find a way. How are we going to make sure that we have FIFA, you know, FIFA standard, you know, standard pitch for the World Cup inside a closed stadium? So that's something really exciting too. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So um, you can keep us all informed through your turf Twitter account and various other uh, publications and, and so on that I'm sure you will have um, about how that is going. So that's exciting. Thank you. Um, David's got a, a good note uh, that I will share here. Um mm -hmm. David mentions that uh, he says, from a water use perspective, most water extracted from the soil is in the top 40% of the root length. Um, and yes, that's right. I've seen a very interesting diagram, and it's easy to remember and, and explain, although I'll see if I can do this from memory live without uh, stumbling over my own words or, or making an error in mental math. But it is a 40-30-20-10 rule. And I, don't, I hesitate to use the word rule, um, a guideline or an idea. 40-30-20-10. If we take 40 and 30 and 20 and 10, it adds up to 100. So think of those as percentages. And what you can expect is divide the root zone depth, whatever it is. Just think of your actual root zone depth, where, where your roots are in the soil. 
in our case, let's assume that they're 10 centimeters in depth for to make it really easy. In the top 25% of the root zone, the top 25% by depth, which would go down to a 2.5 uh, centimeter depth, we could expect 40% of the nutrient and water uptake because nutrients are coming through the water that goes into the roots. So um, we can think of nutrient uptake and water uptake as the same. So in general, it's considered that we can expect 40% of the nutrient uptake comes from the top 25% of the root zone depth. The next 30% of uptake comes from the second increment of 25%. So if we take 40 and 30, we've got 70% of the water uptake is coming from the top 50% of the root zone. And then we've got 40, 30, 20. So then we've got 20% coming from the third increment of depth and we get 10% coming from the very bottom. Uh, so in total, then that's a way to estimate where the nutrients are coming from in the soil and where the water is being taken up from in the soil, which is why it's important to pay attention to the top of the root zone depth and if we do a lot of sampling below the root zone depth, then we have to think, why are we testing the soil at a location where the roots are not doing, and where the roots are not having any activity? Cool. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the comments and input in the chat here. So let's go. Where were we with MLSN? Let's go back to MLSN and your second year of the project. So you've got uh, you've talked about it at field days, you've seen the results, and then you start uh, writing about it to finish up your thesis. And by, by now, you're not really surprised anymore um, because you realized, oh, that makes sense. We're just supplying what the grass needs. And this other method is just uh, um, recommending way too much. So... You write it up and then you defend it. And then does it just completely stop or does do other things happen? Like uh, is Michigan State going to change their recommendations so that they're not recommending something that's going to be 400% uh, more phosphorus than the grass might need? Or, or does it just kind of stop with your project and, and nothing change? So... Um Regarding the if Michigan State going to change your recommendation, that was one of the first comments because they noticed about phosphorus, it's kind of like evens out in the second year, but with potassium, it's still high. So mm -hmm. I, I think there was a comment that there will be like, you'll probably recalibrate the land and maybe because now the potting greens are, you know, sand based, it's way different from they calibrated years ago. So there was about doing that and about the project, Dr. Frank is still continuing it, continuing it still to this day. So we have a, a, a data last year and then a new grad student, her name is Peyton Perkinson. She's the one continuing the MS and SPAN study. Oh, wow. Awesome. So on those same plots getting, yes. so did the grass die yet on those? control plots wh where they don't get any phosphorus and any potassium? It's not really dead. 
last year I, I was still the one maintaining it. It's still just you know purpling. Just just different. You can see notice the difference. It's not dying but struggling. But for okay. Emma, then uh, in the third year it's still the same phosphorus kind of like evens out. But for the potassium, we're applying more potassium on the land that plots compared to the um, Amazon plot. Wow. So this is year four, right? Of Okay. So can you tell us how, how was it last year? What, did SLAN finally, did the extra fertilizer finally beat MLSN? No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. We're still, that's, I think that's the reason Dr. Frank is trying to prolong it, seeing mm -hmm. like a long-term effect of MLSN on keeping ventures and animal bluegrass bonding beans. That's cool. And and this year you haven't you're not maintaining it anymore, but perhaps you have some inside information or you've happened to glance at the plots. Have you noticed that uh, MLSN is losing yet this year? No, not yet. So not we will have another field day. I, I've seen it, but I haven't really, you know, really look at the plot map again, the plot map. But during field day I'm curious about how, how is it going this year? Dr. Kevin Frank will talk about it. Wow. Um, let's definitely keep in touch about that. I'm interested. That's so cool to just keep the experiment going. And I, I think there's a lot of problems. Um, well, not, it's less than optimal in turfgrass research, the way we tend to do really short experiments that go over one summer or two summers which are considered to be a growing season but we're actually really only collecting data for a few months of the year and it's like okay we've got data from this year from that year and then the experiment stops the conclusions are reached and it moves on but if you think about it that's on one or two soil types at one location for a few months and from that we draw conclusions and try to extrapolate across an entire state region or even around the world and start saying okay potassium has this effect or phosphorus doesn't isn't required or something and i think it's a problem with small plot research that goes for a very short period of time then it's so cool to just do this year after year as of course the problem always is funding who's going to pay for these people to do all of this work, who's going to pay for the laboratory fees, who's going to pay for the land use. <laughs> um, but it's, I'm so glad that that's going on because I think you can learn really good things. And um, I always tell people if MLSN doesn't work, that's what I really, I already know that MLSN works in so many places, but I want to know where it doesn't work because then we can make it better and make sure that we won't have failures. I don't want anybody to have failures with this. So it's it's cool, and I'm really interested to know if, if you can make it fail. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm also keeping an eye on it. It's kind of like my first baby at Michigan State. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Thanks, Jackie. Well, uh, we have a question here from John. Um, John is asking, was the verdure, verdure, I, I, I can't remember. I always, I always pronounce this word differently than other people do. Um, I think I say verdure and I think a lot of people say verdure. Um, and I, I think they may be correct. Anyway, that is the above ground, uh, plant material. So 
Jackie, was that was the verdure left on the soil samples or removed? Um, they were removed. And did you remove that in the field or is that something that you removed at the laboratory? In the field. So here we go again. Okay, so you just, you pinched off the top. Yeah. Okay, that's how I did for my PhD research also, is I, I pinched off the verdure and that very top little bit of thatch uh, at the, in the field before I put the soil samples into the bag and, and took them to the laboratory. I think this is something that I change what I recommend now. And this is another example of non-standardized procedures in the entire industry. Because when the samples go to the lab, that gets removed anyway by a machine. Because all of the soil sampling methods that are, are standard, that are used for MLSN or SLAN or something, they need the soil to be dried the soil needs to pass through a two millimeter uh, sieve so that uh, you remove all the gravel and rocks and, and sticks and stones out of the sample so that we're actually testing soil, particles that are in the sand fraction or silt fraction or clay and the, the small pieces of organic matter, the soil organic matter. So um, I used to always recommend removing it and I used to do it myself. And then I realized that's inconsistent because I might pinch off a little bit more or a little bit less than somebody else does. And even if I like try to measure it and cut it with a knife, that could also be inconsistent because people might do it a little bit differently, but we could just send it to the lab and let the machines do it. And that's gonna be the same every time. I think it's more consistent. So this is something that I always did it myself. And, and I think the standard procedure should be to leave it on and let the machines remove it at the lab, which is not a criticism of how you did it, because I think you do it, Jackie, the way most people do it. Um, and it's the way I was taught to do it and the way that I did do it, but it's not the way that I would do it now. After I look at the entire chain of events that happens from the time the sample comes out of the soil to the time it we get the results back. Well, yeah, that's, that's a good observation here. That's another thing that when I did it, I was like, okay. It's the same thing, you know, same question also popped into my head. How can I make this consistent? Because I'm removing verdure and when I got the soil, it's different. But yeah, that's a, that's a good one. But it's, I'm not sure if I need to ask or you know, or people in the lab, if they, if we can dispense all samples with, with still the verdure on it, I can ask that and see if they will accept it. Right. Because at, the labs always have instructions of how you should do it. And the lab instructions generally say that you should remove it. And so, yeah. um, so that's generally how people do it. I just think for consistency's sake, when we're so concerned about, um, being as precise as possible and we're really trying to avoid over application of fertilizer but we're definitely trying to prevent nutrient deficiencies as well so to do that i think it makes a lot of sense to be very precise and consistent with the procedures and they've got those machines that can do it um so yeah it's interesting it's yeah. isn't it 
interesting to do research. And all of these things that we think should be so simple and standardized, we real as you do the research, you realize, wait, here's a potential source of error. Here's a potential way to explain why my results are different than yours. How is it 2022? And as an industry, we haven't standardized these things yet. And I suppose that that just happens as we delve deeper and deeper into a subject and study it. It's, uh, it's an interesting way to, uh, it's an interesting part of research. That's true. Um, that's, you know, going into the biggest, you know, going to the United States, surfgrass research. When I asked about, okay, about, you know, the soil fertility, the research, I was kind of like surprised. There's a lot of still gaps in, in this one. And I, I was expecting, I think maybe I was expecting more. And then people told me that, as you have mentioned, that it's relatively, still relatively new here. So I yeah, thought it, it. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's a very young science. And um, there, yeah, it's, it's something that we still have lots of opportunities to improve and to standardize. And I think your experiment was very important for that because it just demonstrates that, uh, wow, some of the standard recommendations, the ones that people just by default, they, they make these recommendations and they'll go around saying, uh, you know, at, at, at training seminars uh, or uh, educational events, just say, you know, follow the local guidelines from your state, follow you know, just follow the local guidelines that are developed by science. But then you, of course, those are safe in terms of uh, definitely preventing nutrient deficiency. But it's also can be an excessive amount of nutrient recommendation, which largely has to do with the types of soils that turf grass is grown in today. Because a lot of these guidelines were let's say that turfgrass science started pretty seriously with a lot of research in the 50s and 60s um, about 60 50 to 60 years ago 1950s 1960s and one of the important things that was done then was develop some nutrient guidelines and back then a lot of turfgrass was grown in soils and when turfgrass is grown in soils it naturally is going to have or it's going to tend to have a lot more phosphorus and potassium in the soil. And because of that, those guidelines have just continued and they haven't been updated as much as perhaps they could have been. And so what happens uh, is we have these sand-based systems now that turf is grown in that, that naturally have a lot lower nutrient levels, but the recommendations are from 50 years ago. And that's where MLSN comes in and it adjusts for this type of soil type and and it tends to work quite well so jackie are you ready to answer some more questions we have uh a few questions and comments uh, i'll bring up evie does it asks mlsn for homeowners or push-up greens would be very fascinating if it differs from sand-based greens yes it would be um and i don't think it does uh, in practice, because MLSN is a way to make a fertilizer recommendation. It's it's not uh, it's not just looking at what's in the soil. It's looking at basically it's a way to say how much fertilizer should we apply. 
based on what grass we're growing in a particular climate and for um, given that we have a certain nutrient content in the soil. Um, so I think because mostly what we're looking at is, is how much the grass is expected to use over time. Um, I, I think it should just work fine. Um, but as there's more experiments like this, um, we'll find out if it's different or not. So I think for a follow-up, I think I'll, I'll, I'll do like a follow-up question to that. So this the Amazon guidelines, those guidelines that we did, will, will it be the same for a, like a homeowner or, you know, a different soil type? Because that's, that's a pretty interesting stuff that you did. You had that, you know, a lot of data and it Right. So we, we developed it. MLSN, where those numbers came from, was from a huge database of about 17,000 samples from uh, ATC and, and from Pace Turf. And so we put those samples together. They were all from good performing turf, all from turf that at the time the sample was collected, the turf was performing well. And it was professionally managed turf and then we cut out all the saline affected the all the salt affected soils we cut out everything that had a ph below 5.5 or a ph above 8.3 because we generally if we do have soils outside of the, that ph range we would recommend to get it back within that range and we also then made a cut uh, by cec to look at everything that's less than 60 millimoles of charge per kilogram, which in the units that a lot of people use, which is centimoles, that would be six centimoles of charge per kilogram. So we, we cut out everything that had more nutrients than that because we made a big assumption. Our big assumption is that if there's a lot of nutrients in the soil because you have a relatively high CEC, then your grass is going to be well supplied with nutrients. All right. So we make the assumption that if you've got a lot of nutrients in the soil, you've got a lot of nutrients in the soil. I think that's a fair assumption to make. And so we cut that out and then we modeled the distribution of nutrients in those soils and threw away the bottom 10%. So even though there's 10% of the soils in that MLSN data set that are actually below the MLSN guideline, we also make the assumption that um, those are fine too. But we said, let's give ourselves a little uh, 10% safety margin. And so that's what we set the MLSN minimum as. But if you think about what we've done, we've just, when we did that modeling, we threw away all the high nutrient soils. We threw away all the soils that had a CEC above 60, cent, 60 millimoles of charge per kilogram, which basically is saying we're looking mostly at sand root zones or we're looking at push-up greens, soil-based systems that have been top-dressed with sand over time. So implicit in the MLSN guidelines and in the MLSN recommendations are that um, these are quite suitable for low-nutrient holding capacity soils. And if the soils already have a lot more nutrients... Um, I don't think that they need even more nutrients, but if that is the case, then MLSN would be under recommending perhaps for high nutrient soils. If, if that makes sense. So, um, I'm, 
I'm sure that it works good for, for low nutrient holding soils. And we make the assumption that if your soils already have a lot more nutrients, then it's going to be fine. Right. So, and, and yeah, to, so Jackie, to you mentioned, what about other grass types or other soils um, and how that might vary? Yeah. I, I think as we collect more data, the MLSN guidelines are 10 years old now. And it's, it seems to me like it's been my uh, longer than that, but it's just something that we developed and introduced in 2012. So this is the 10 year anniversary of MLSN. I've collected a lot more data. Other people are collecting data. People are doing experiments. So we'll figure out if these numbers need to be adjusted. Um, I will say one of the follow-up projects we did was the global soil survey and the global soil survey we looked at about 163 soil samples from multiple sites around the world. I think from uh, seven countries or something. We, we had samples from Europe, the United States, Canada, Philippines, Thailand, Japan, Korea, multiple countries from, from around uh, the world and from different continents. So it's a very small data set, but it's quite varied in the soil types, in the uh, mineralogy of the different soils from which the samples were submitted and the different grass types, the different growing environments. So we run the same equations that we use to calculate MLSN. When we run that on the global soil survey data, we get very similar results and actually a little bit lower. Uh, for most nutrients. So potassium would go down a little bit uh, if we use the global soil survey data. Calcium and magnesium would go down substantially using the global soil survey data. And when we collected those samples for the global soil survey, we were very explicit in our instructions to, on your site, please collect samples from good performing turf. So we we asked turfgrass managers to find uh, turf that's growing well on their sites. So we know that the turf was performing well uh, in all those global soil survey samples. So you'll see some more updates from me. Hopefully by the end of this year, I'll update the overall MLSN guidelines and include data such as the global soil survey uh, in that. All right, let's do some more comments and questions. Shall we? Yes. Aldo says, my understanding is the reputable labs will clean the soil samples. Using the same lab also helps in regard to consistency and testing. I, that's my understanding also. Um, I think even the unreputable labs, of which I, I, I don't know that the, I, I don't mean to imply anything by that uh, because I'm not aware of which labs would be reputable and which would be unreputable. Uh, I think it's just a standard procedure that uh, soil samples are dried. For, for any of the standard methods, the first procedure is to dry the soil. The second procedure is to grind it uh, and pass it through a sieve. So that's the way it works. And yeah, using the same lab also helps in regards to consistency and testing. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, I think it's really important to do the same soil sampling depth 
And another thing for consistency, besides same lab, so you want same lab, you want uh, same sampling depth, and you want the same approximate season of the year because you will see seasonal changes uh, from start of season to end of season also. Any comments about that, Checky? Or did I yeah, satisfactorily I answer it? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, mentioned everything. Okay, David's got a comment. Let's bring this up. David, who's joining us from Sydney, Australia, says soil sampling is based on ag methodology, a, a fixed depth over an area of soil. Upon mixing of the soil in the lab, you end up with an average of elements over the depth of the sample. Therefore, any layers like or, organic matter in a layer form is mixed. That's right. So we, we're expecting that the way that soil testing works at the lab is um, mixing the soil. So we're any layering effects or depths of effects will disappear, which is why it's so uh, if you submit a sample from seven centimeter depth, then uh, you're expecting that the way that it gets processed at the lab is they're going to mix that all up and take a random sample that represents the average across that depth which is why it's so important to, if you submit samples at a fixed depth, do it the same depth year after year. I recommend generally 10 centimeters, uh, four inches for turf grass. I think that works pretty good for, for greens. It works pretty good for fairways. It works pretty good for sports fields. It works pretty good for lawns. Um, so in some cases, like for lawns, I definitely expect my roots are going to be deeper than 10 centimeters. But as David mentioned earlier, you do have most of your water and nutrient uptake is coming from near the surface. So it makes sense. Maybe just forget about the bottom of the root zone and, and just stick with a 10 centimeter depth. And for golf course putting greens, sometimes people say, well, my roots are only three centimeters depth or my roots are only four centimeters depth. I think it's good to be aspirational and think that sometimes of the year, uh, if we manage the grass well, maybe we can get those roots down to 10 centimeters. And so let's, uh, to me, um, I just think 10 centimeters works pretty good because we can get 10 centimeter depth roots um, in a lot of turf grass systems. So I'm, but yeah, you, you decide for yourself what depth you want to do, but don't, uh, if you sub sometimes, because I do soil testing as a business, uh, so I have clients who send samples and I look at the results. Sometimes I see a huge change in phosphorus from year to year. And I think, oh my, did they, did they mess up their sampling depth? Right? Because if you, if you change your sampling depth, you, you'll see some huge changes in phosphorus and in pota potassium less so, but phosphorus is a big one um, because phosphorus is relatively immobile in soil. Um, and so you get it in, in, in layers depending on when the fertilizer was applied. Cool. We've got, thanks everybody for, for chatting with us. This is, this is good. Gufran says, uh, greatly appreciate the efforts put in to bring up MLSN, especially from an environmental perspective. Yes, that's, uh, that's interesting. I, some of you may know, I recently acquired Pace Turf. Pace Turf is, I'll bring the website up here. Pace Turf 
is a company that provides practical advice and decision support tools for turfgrass management. It is a sub- it, there's some free content on the website. It's also a subscription-based service that is 275 US dollars per year. Pace Turf was developed by doctors Wendy Galerter and Larry Stoll, and they have made a great information service, Pace Turf, that has uh, just tremendous information about climate effect on turf grass, decision-making tools in response to the weather, uh, the growth potential, which is used, temperature-based growth potential, which is widely used all over the world. And one of the things that they did in collaboration with me was MLSN. MLSN, which is, we're talking about today, which is a modern method for turf grass soil test interpretation. Um, So as we developed MLSN, we kind of approached it or we communicated about it a little bit differently. I have always tried to communicate it as a way to prevent nutrient deficiencies, a way for any turf grass anywhere in the world to be able to make the right fertilizer recommendation to apply just what the grass requires, but no more. Be, but I'm not focused so much on sustainability or reducing inputs or, or anything like that. For me, the focus has always been high quality turf. How can we do soil testing in the optimum way possible? And from Pace Turf, a lot of their focus in the way that they've communicated about MLSN has been at least initially, it was, here's an alternative way to reduce nutrient inputs. Here's an alternative way to interpret soil tests. If you want to get away from the standard way, here's a way to reduce your inputs and be more sustainable. So there's there's a slight divergence there. They're both ways that we can use MLSN. And it turns out, as Jackie's research shows, we reduce... Uh, you can reduce uh, potassium fertilizer, at least for that soil type, that grass type, compared to the standard recommendations at your location, 400% difference. You, you would be applying four times more. And I averaged over two years, I think it was 378%, which I've written a few blog posts about this. Um, if anybody, I'll share my screen. If anybody wants to see that I summarized it in a post that I called uh, adding potassium fertilizer does not increase the soil's ability to store it and Jackie we didn't talk about this yet we the the soil test results at the start and at the end of the experiment so um, I I showed a picture of a beautiful golf course in Mauritius where um, Storm Lupier used to be the golf course superintendent Um, what was that Tamarina? I, I can't remember the name of this golf course, but this is, I'm showing a picture of a beautiful golf course in Mauritius with, uh, that's champion Ultradorf Bermuda grass on those greens. So I put a link here. This is about uh, Jackie's thesis, uh, which is effects of different soil testing philosophies on creeping bent grass and annual bent grass potting greens. And I get down to the end. I'm going to, I'll put a link to this in the description uh, of this video and of the podcast Jackie, can we take turns reading this? Can you see this on the screen where I say yeah. here, are, 
Here are a few quotes from Guevara's thesis. I'll read the first paragraph. You read the second. I'll read the third. Is that okay? Okay. All right. The quotes, soil testing philosophy, and by that we mean MLSN versus SLAN versus uh, just ignoring phosphorus and potassium. So the soil testing philosophy by traffic interaction was not significant in turf grass color and quality. The absence of these interactions implied that the relatively high potassium applied on the slam plots did not improve wear tolerance and had the same effect on turf grass color and quality, whether it was trafficked or not. It was also interesting to notice that the K results between the SLAN and MLSM treatments in October 2020 were not statistically different, despite the large difference in the amount of K applied for each treatment. Thus, any excess K applying on SLAN plots may have leach from the from the root zone. And that is, uh, that is so key right there, which I'm going to talk about that, uh, in a little bit. Uh, I, I think that's really important because it just disappeared. But the final quote that I had there, the final paragraph says, even though the potassium recommendation K based on slant philosophy was three times higher than MLSN philosophy, both treatments had no significant difference in October 2020 for soil potassium values. So that's at the end of the experiment, the soil test values were the same. Potassium is easily lost through leaching and sandy root zones due to the nature of exchangeable potassium. Moreover, moreover, the absence of testing philosophy by traffic interaction implied that the relatively high potassium applied on slant plots did not improve wear tolerance and had the same effect on turf grass color and quality, whether it was trafficked or not. So the take home message from that is you've just applied over two years, more than three times as much potassium. Uh, in the first year, it was four and a half times as much. In the second year, it was like three times as much. Averages out, I think, to 378 times as much. Uh, not, th sorry. 3.78, 378% more potassium in the traditional treatment. And it's absolutely no difference in quality. But then when you test the soil at the end of the experiment, you can't find it. It's, it didn't build up a soil reserve. It didn't, it, it's just gone. Yeah, I think. because it's a sandy root zone. So the sandy root zone can really hold that much potassium is just niched down to the salt profile unlike the phosphorus that and that's where up. right so the the you've you've mentioned a couple times that the phosphorus in the soil seem to kind of stabilize or the soil test levels and the recommendations kind of stabilize which is what we expect because phosphorus if, if your soil is saturated with phosphorus if it has historically been over applied uh, if phosphorus has been over applied year after year, the soil will get saturated with phosphorus. It can't hold any more phosphorus. And then it's very high risk of phosphorus leaching or phosphorus runoff. And that's why they're 
can be a lot of regulations about phosphorus fertilizer application because phosphorus is a pollutant in water bodies and we really want to avoid over application of phosphorus especially in soils that have a high soil test phosphorus level because they would be at higher risk of phosphorus loss but in soils that don't have very much phosphorus there is a high ability of that soil to sorb the phosphorus and so it tends to stay there and then the grass can use it over time and if you add extra it can stay in the soil that's not the way it works with potassium and as i've mentioned many times when you add fertilizer i would like everybody who applies fertilizer whether you're a home lawn manager whether you're a lawn care company uh, that's applying fertilizer whether you are a golf course superintendent or a, a sports field manager when you apply fertilizer uh, there's two things that don't happen okay think of things that don't happen when you apply fertilizer when you apply fertilizer you're not increasing the soil's ability to hold it okay you're just applying fertilizer unless you're applying zeolite <laughs> unless you're applying like a zeolite coated with something or unless you're applying a fertilizer that's amended with some type of uh, storage holding uh, thing which i think is not really necessary but those products is, exist but if you're applying fertilizer you're not you're not simultaneously increasing the soil's ability to hold that fertilizer so you have to think that when you apply something can the soil hold it and then there's, there's another thing that you're not doing when you're applying fertilizer. You're not simultaneously increasing the soil's uh, ability, uh, sorry, the plant's ability to take, take it up, right? So if you're adding nitrogen, you are increasing nutrient demand to some extent, but it's ridiculous to apply a, a really high rate of nitrogen fertilizer because then your grass will grow too fast and nobody wants that. So we always are limiting turf grass growth by applying moderate to small amounts of nitrogen. So when we start thinking about how much phosphorus we apply, how much potassium we apply, and other things that are very rarely needed to apply like calcium or magnesium, we don't increase the soil's ability to hold it and we don't increase the grass's ability to take it up simply by adding that fertilizer. So we have to think about that and, I, and that's what I was writing about in that blog post that I just shared, using data from your experiment to emphasize that point, that simply adding a fertilizer doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to stay in the soil. So we should think about how much the grass can use. And to me, it makes sense to apply. That's where MLSN had the, the, the simplicity of MLSN is, Let's make sure we keep this minimum amount in the soil that we know can produce good turf. And then let's calibrate the amount that we apply to how much the grass at our site will use and calculate a fertilizer recommendation from that. So that's how it works. Brent says, I will be happy to send you soil samples here in Massachusetts. Brent, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Asian Turfgrass, although that's not the best way to discuss sending soil samples. Um, but if you want to do some soil sampling, uh, you can get in touch with me through Twitter or go to my website, which is AsianTurfgrass.com, and you can find the contact form or email me. 
uh, and email me and we can discuss if I can help with some soil testing or uh, if I can recommend another lab that can help you out with that. Um, let's see. Love My Lawn says, oh my, this is a great question. This is, uh, let me find that. Love My Lawn says, if you were to reach behind you <laughs> and grab one book to reread, which one would it be? Um, hmm. I, I thought you were going to ask us for any kind of turfgrass book. Let's see. Well, I, I think on the topic of turf nutrition, this is a really good one. Uh, Mineral Nutrition of Higher Plants, Second Edition by Horst Marschner. Uh, this is... This is a classic book on, on nutrition. Um, I'll show you what I'm reading right now. I mean, I, I use some of these for reference. This is an absolutely amazing book. Michael Backen, who recently got his PhD. I got to get the light right here. An Introduction to Environmental Biophysics. Um, this is an absolutely superb book that I'm reading right now. Michael Becken, who just got his PhD at University of Wisconsin, recommended that to me. And uh, this is superb. I'm also reading The Nature of Plant Communities. So I keep what I'm reading uh, on my uh, desk or, or, some, or on my uh, nightstand by my bed. Uh, this one is superb. This by uh, Jay Basto Wilson and co-authors. I've got a trip to New Zealand coming up. And uh, this is from Ecol... J. Basta Wilson is an ecologist from New Zealand, a uh, late ecologist from New Zealand, and he's done a lot of work with uh, plant communities and what type of plants grow in uh, assemb assemblages of plants, like lawns, where you have multiple species, or like in Jackie's experiment, where you have, um, where you have poa annua and bent grass. So these are good... Uh, I have my copy of Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens uh, in a in in a different part of the house because I have been rereading that. Uh, so I think uh, probably Brothers Karamazov. If if you want fiction, uh, this one I've I've read a couple times. Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, classic book. Uh, always yeah. recommend. So yeah, there's lots of these. Jackie, how about for your books? Um, what would you recommend? Turf or non-turf? <laughs> oh no! Um, like I, I like a lot of non-fiction. So it's not really classic, but I like reading. Always reading Tuesdays with Maury. I don't know why. But, Tuesdays uh, with Maury. Okay. Yeah, my, I. I I have not read that book. I read a review of it. I'll recommend one more book. Um, another one that I is often on my desk because I refer to this is Turfgrass Soil Fertility and Chemical Problems Assessment and Management by Dr. Bob Carroll, who I had the pleasure of emailing with this week. Um, uh, he's retired from the University of Georgia, but uh, uh, this is by Drs. Carroll, uh, Waddington, and Riki, right? Is it? Dr. Yeah. Riki also, who you mentioned earlier, Jackie. So you've uh, uh, had some input from Dr. Riki on this experiment. I've been in communication with Dr. Carroll recently. Dr. Waddington is uh, deceased. 
So it's uh, this is a classic uh, reference book about turf grass soils and turf grass nutrition. Yeah, same for me. That's the, that's the book I read, go back to whenever I need a good reference. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that excellent question. Uh, let's see. Now we've got Mr. Johnny on the spot. Uh, I think this is Alan DeWald, uh, if, if I remember right. Uh, Alan, you say what, or you ask, what percentage of golf courses do you think are utilizing MLSN compared to a few years ago? Jackie, can you go first with this? Do you, do you, have you considered that or has anybody asked you or, or do you know? That's the thing that I, I'm also curious about. Have you done any survey about how many people are using this, this um, like MLSN in your golf course? No, no, I haven't. So I'm going to say I don't know what percentage are utilizing compared to a few years ago. Uh, I would say it's more. Um, but there's room for there's room for more people to utilize this because I see some of the standard recommendations. Um, they remain the standard, although um, yeah, I saw a presentation for GCSAA, a webinar by Travis Shaddix a couple weeks ago, uh, a month ago or so. I I think he he did that in June. I think he did that in June. It's recorded, available on the GCSA website uh, in the education portal. And he made the recommendation. It's it's very U.S.-based. So I'm kind of thinking globally, how can anybody growing grass anywhere in the world figure out how to put the right amount of fertilizer for their site? So that's where MLSN, I think, is quite handy. Uh, Travis recommended in the... Um, in the U.S., look for your local uh, extension or your local university. What have they recommended? Uh, so follow that first. And if you don't, if you can't find that, or if you don't have that information, then fall back on MLSN. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I think that's good advice. But the problem is, is your research shows, Jackie, is that at least in year one and year two and year three, and apparently in year four of this experiment, uh, sometimes those local recommendations or the, the university recommendations can actually be uh, recommending more fertilizer than would be required in the case of a low nutrient holding sand root zone. Yeah, and it depends how um, latest those research are, those calibration studies were. Because if it's older, so probably in still a different root zone compared to what we have now, which is sand-based green. Yeah, that's right. And Doug Soldot had an interesting article in the Wisconsin Soils Report, which is published in, uh, what is it, Turfgrass Roots? or Whatever the Wisconsin Turfgrass Associations, the grassroots, the, I think their publication is called The Grassroots, about... 10 years ago, he published an article in there, um, and it's called the Wisconsin Soils Report. And I recall that uh, he said something like, soil test calibration is expensive and time-consuming. 
and he said, every time we do one of these experiments, one of these soil test calibration experiments, and by we, he means every time turfgrass researchers do this type of experiment, they keep finding that the optimum levels from that experiment are lower than what they found in the previous research. So the optimum levels, every time they do this type of calibration study, it keeps coming down and down and down. So you make a very good point, Jackie, in that um, the guidelines that we're working from, we need to consider when were they developed and were they from a different soil type in a different era? Because the other thing that you can find in some of these books behind me, if we're looking at a book from the 1970s, the amount of nitrogen recommended back then, 45 years ago, was a lot higher than it is today. And uh, for some reason, I think people wanted greener lawns and greener turf and softer surfaces and something that was just uh, viridescent in color. And when nitrogen will allow you to do that, but that also increases the demand and the use of, uh, it increases the plant use of phosphorus, the plant use of potassium and so on. Basically, uh, those are all gonna be directly, linearly proportional to the nitrogen rate. And so when we're in the modern era where people are applying less nitrogen fertilizer, that means the phosphorus and the potassium should come down. The equation that we use for MLSN to make fertilizer recommendations based on the soil test results, it has a, a, a term in there that explicitly is looking at this for, um, for how much nitrogen you're gonna apply at your site, um, for how much you expect your grass to grow and how many nutrients it will use. So I think uh, MLSN works really well globally and it, it's a nice default to the local recommendations, although um, it's definitely not locally calibrated. It's not calibrated against anything. It's just calibrated against good performing turf in a lot of soils around the world. And it's so good that it gets checked for people to say, does this work? And some people like Doug Soldat at the University of Wisconsin, he's got soils and grasses where MLSN would over-recommend Right, so so he criticizes MLSN from the perspective of you shouldn't say that this is universally applicable, Micah. He might tell me because if I, and then he would say if I would use MLSN at my location, MLSN would be the one that is recommending too much fertilizer, and so he can actually do better by just applying nothing. Now, I would debate that with him by saying, okay, but if we average this out across all the turf grass sites in the world, there's only going to be a few sites that get a slight over recommendation of fertilizer, but overall it's going to be preventing deficiency. But um, yes, MLSN is not perfect. MLSN can also over recommend fertilizer, but I think compared to traditional standard recommendations, it often is going to have the effect like Jackie found that is it, uh, it's going to lead to a reduction in fertilizer with absolutely no change in turf grass quality. In fact, the turf grass may even get better. Yeah. So, yes, and I'm also going to add regarding um, like for the older studies, if they've been looking at like clipping and now, now 
you don't want a lot of flipping. You know, flipping yield was one of the parameters to do this club calibration studies. And that was one of the comments that, you know, there, a lot of the key take, takeaway when I presented it to everyone is that now for modern salt test calibration, we're not going to look at the yield. It's not ag anymore. It's more about the quality, the performance, where we need to look at different um, parameters to know this is the right, you know, the, the, the um, parameters you want is in a different salt test level. Mm -hmm. And just, yes, and just a follow up um, question, uh, Dr. Woods, about. Um, is the when you develop this MLSM guideline, was it is this less time consuming or less you know less expensive compared to the, the traditional calibration method? Because that's the thing I'm also curious about. Oh, uh, you mean in terms of the way that we do the the calculation yeah. and right? Yeah, I um, I'm gonna. I'm going to mention my blog again, and I'm going to say that I've, I've written about a lot of these things, or I've given presentations where I've explained it. I also have my YouTube channel where I have some of the recorded presentations where I talk about some of these things, including uh, sort of answering that about MLSN. So if anybody is interested in this, please go to my website and you can read about all this stuff uh, probably for more time than anybody wants to spend reading about it or watching videos about it. So to answer that, the traditional soil test interpretation, uh, uh, no, sorry, calibration, to do that type of experiment, you must use multiple soil types and you have to have different fertilizer rates on all of those soil types and you have to have only one crop so in that case we'd be talking about one uh, variety of grass or, or one species of grass let's say we could but tiff eagle is different than tiffway 419 for example in bermuda grass so really you want to look at one variety within one species midnight kentucky bluegrass is different than uh, a, a different type of kentucky bluegrass so yeah you really want to look at one variety within one species and then you have to do this on different and this is within like one climatic region one one area with similar weather but you look at all the different soil types in the region and apply different fertilizer rates and then measure the quality response for corn or for potatoes or for rice you would measure the yield but for turf grass in the modern era we're not going to we would measure the yield, but we would look really at the primary response variable that we look at as the um, turf quality. So to do that, let's now all of a sudden extrapolate that out to the world. Think of how many different grass types are used around the world. Think of how many different climates there are around the world. And think of how many different soil types there are around the world. And and then think of the different ways that people are managing turf around the world. It quickly becomes apparent that it's impossible to calibrate soil tests using that traditional ag-based method um, like you would do for corn. It's impossible. And I often use the example of Bogota, Colombia, which is a place I've never been and I would love to go. And it's up in the mountains, I believe. So it's at a relatively high elevation. So you could... 
but it's close to the equator. I think they have bent grass there. If they have bent grass, they would also have poa annua. Probably you can grow warm season grasses too, like kaikuyu grass, I presume, just by looking at some of the temperature data. Probably you could have some other warm season grasses, other cool season grasses. But there's not a huge amount of turf grass, not a huge amount of turf grass research in Colombia from as far as I know. So how are we ever going to find out what is a proper soil test calibration for phosphorus for bent grass in Bogota? And then how, now let's say now we have Kaikuyu grass, totally different. It's it's a C4 grass, not a C3 grass. Now let's look at another C4 grass, Cynodendactylin. It, it would require a different calibration. And how can we make a recommendation for that? Or Pakistan, I also use the example of Pakistan. They're looking at, look at how many different soil types there are in Pakistan and look at, they also have hill stations, high uh, elevation places that could have cool season grass, but a lot of the go around Karachi or somewhere close to sea level. Now you're going to have seashore paspalum or you're going to have uh, zoysia or Bermuda grass. So you've got different species, different soil types. How, how can we make a recommendation when nobody's doing these calibration studies? And, and I argue because of the cost of it, those calibration studies will never be done, which is you can look at, let's say you do a whole bunch of research at Los Banos in the Philippines. Los Banos is about an hour's drive from Manila to the south and east of Manila around uh, Laguna de Bay. And yes. then let's go to a lovely vacation spot in the Philippines, Baguio, which is about uh, 1500 or 1800 uh, meter elevation, a very cl very clement weather in a tropical country. It's what we could call a hill station. You go to Baguio, you can have bent grass greens, you can have kaikuyu grass, you can have uh, also cynodon, and pretty much every grass in the world would grow in the climate of Baguio because it's up in the mountains, but it's relatively close to the equator. But it would be different soil types than you have in Los Banos. So you could do all this research at Los Banos, even if it's in the same country, but it's not valid for the Baguio conditions. So with MLSN, we just try to generalize and we just try to pick one single level that we that that is safe. And it, it's that minimum level that's in MLSN. We pick that minimum level that should be safe for any grass, anywhere, any soil type in the world. But the main thing where that recommendation is coming from for MLSN is based on expected plant use in the term that the equation that I use A plus B minus C equals F. F, F. A is plant use, B is the MLSN minimum, C is the soil test level, F is the fertilizer amount to apply for the given time period over which we've estimated the value A. So it's a little bit of very basic algebra to come up with a fertilizer recommendation. MLSN works that way for most turf grass sites where you're going to find basically you could say A equals F. And, and what will happen for a lot of turf grass sites is B becomes insignificant. The MLSN level is very low. It drops out of the equation. The soil test level is also kind of can drop out of the equation and you can just simplify it to plant use equals the fertilizer amount. Where the problem has come in with traditional soil test interpretation is the huge value is uh, trying to read the huge value in that type of equation would be 
the trying to get the soil up to some supposed optimum level. And it's based on old research. It's based on maximum grass growth with a high nitrogen rate on not on sandy root zones, but based on uh, soils that have a relatively high nutrient holding capacity. And that's why practically in your experiment for your master's thesis, you end up recommending 300 or 400 percent or you end up getting that recommendation and then applying 300 to 400 percent more potassium on those soils based on the traditional recommendation because it's based on a traditional type of calibration. So MLSN works pretty good and that's a very long-winded way to say I don't think that it's feasible to do calibration traditional calibration work for turf grass and I don't think it will ever be done because it's just impossible. There's no way that it can be done for places like Baguio, Karachi, Bogota and that look at how big the world is. Look at how many beautiful lawns and sporting surfaces and and grassy areas and roadsides there are all around the world where people are growing grass. That I think we need a different method to come up with fertilizer recommendations and MLSN was complicated but uh much much simpler much much simpler and much lower cost than doing uh traditional calibrations yeah so yeah um i'm gonna comment on that so the main thing that i was drawn to emma said it's not really if it's gonna save fertilizers or it's gonna you know good for environment it's more about the model behind it because we um we discuss about um the, the traditional salt that's Oh, and salt test calibration. It's so it's so slow. It's expensive. I noticed that too. Maybe if we have like a limited um, like resources in the world, we can do salt test calibration every time. So our our recommendations, you know, our equation, our slant equation will be up to date. But the thing is, it's not. So I I know there is this need to have this very dynamic way to do like a you know an equation uh, uh, recommendation. Because we're, especially right now in our, you know, in this in this era where big data really matters a lot, data science, data mining, data will give us a lot of answers that we're looking to. That's why I'm always like, okay, how do you interesting? How do you correlate a lot of like different parts of the world and still it's working? And the main thing that that was that I was drawn to because I'm interested on those kind of stuff. Well, good. You picked a uh, great topic to be interested in. I'm glad you are interested in this and that you saw the the kind of the insight that we had of let's, uh, and really I'll credit Larry Stowell from Pace Turf uh, of, um, with, with this insight of we've got all these soil test results from good performing turf. Can't we do some, can't we extract something valuable out of that? And uh, we tried various methods. Um, we were beating because it's this is so different, and this this gets at a couple of the comments that that have been made also by Alan uh, and by John about industry adoption and uh, being surprised that this hasn't become more mainstream at this point. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it hasn't become 
mainstream is nobody was thinking about it this way and it's only 10 years old but even larry and i we were beating our heads against the wall with this data that we had trying to come up with some way to extract something useful out of it for a general way to make fertilizer recommendations based on this um, and it turns out that this is quite different from the way that people typically uh, think about how we should do uh, soil test interpretation and fertilizer recommendations and so there was uh, i'm also trained in soil science and horticulture and and science and I was kind of like, I also had this thought as we were developing MLSN of, we can't do it this way, that, that it won't be accepted. It's not, it's not acceptable to not really have a response variable. Because if you think about it, all we did is just look at the numbers. We, we just had a very, we just had an assumed response variable. And the assumed response variable is we know that when the sample was collected, the turf was performing well. But that's, that's not the traditional type of response variable that you would look at um, turf quality that varied or look at yield, the amount of growth that you have that varies. Looking at that type of response variable, we had like a fixed response variable of just the turf was good. It was very non-traditional. And it turned out that it was a pretty effective insight because it's turned out that over 10 years, MLSN worked well at a lot of places around the world. But I think, um, so John, uh, John has the comment. Well, no, we'll do Alan. Alan says, uh, I'm a little surprised with the amount of time and research MLSN hasn't become more mainstream at this point. And of course, I think we're all maybe a little bit surprised that it hasn't, although I think there's a lot of people doing it. I, I mean, we're definitely in the thousands of turf grass sites around the world um, and on all continents is definitely all continents and um, thousands of sites using it. So there is a little bit of a surprise that it isn't completely mainstream, but um, maybe it's more mainstream than we think. Because even in, like in that GCSA webinar that Travis Shaddix gave, he does recommend MLSN if you don't have something better and something that's more locally specific. And theoretically, if you're locally specific, you should be, you would expect that if you have scientists recommending things locally, they, they have a reason for recommending it. Um, and so that's a solid, solid approach. Use your local recommendations. And if you don't have them, then... Uh, default to MLSN. And if I talk to Doug Soldot, who I did recently, I talked with Doug Soldot recently. He's another turfgrass uh, soil scientist. And he also recommends MLSN um, generally. So MLSN is something that does get recommended. And then it's like, yeah, how do we get more people actually using it? John says, uh, any thoughts or ideas on how to speed up industry adoption, not just golf, but anyone who grows grass? Um, I, I will give a quick answer, which is I think just keep communicating about it and keep getting good results. And eventually uh, you can't really argue with results. So if people get better turf grass conditions then, uh, or, or equivalent turf grass conditions for, and spend less money and uh, have an easier way of managing the turf, then I think it's, it's inevitable that it just 
eventually everybody defaults to this until we come up with something better. Have you considered this question, Jackie? And do you have any comments about that? Um, I think so. The adoption. So after I think after I, I I've been to a lot of talk. A lot of professors is asking for my slides, and now they're integrating it to their, you know, to their classes. I think that's where it, it really starts. For an, you know, new turf gas manager, um, because now there's a lot of turf students. Where I'm, I'm planning to also, I think Dr. Frank, Kevin Frank, is also incorporating it to his classes now. So maybe after this, you know, batch of students last year, this year, who heard about the research, and then they, you know, given to them, and then they'll be able to adapt that in their golf course after they graduate. I think that's one of the ways to do that. Yeah, I, I, I think that will be helpful. There is uh, definitely things change slowly because it's difficult to put uh, a turf grass course together. If you've ever taught something, uh, you've got to put a lot of material together to teach, and that doesn't always get updated all the time. And in um, any science, they the teachers always want something to be peer reviewed. They want it to be tested and to make sure it doesn't fail or have flaws. And because turfgrass is a relatively small industry and because MLSN was only introduced 10 years ago, it's spread rapidly through blogs and social media and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and other places where people show the results that they get. And so we might think that I'm getting great results this year at my site. I'm getting great results the next year at my site. So it becomes like obvious that it works. But it, if we think about it in the big picture, it's only been 10 years and it hasn't really had enough time to be fully tested the way that most things that are in textbooks get tested. So although there's a lot of good logic behind it, um, it, Maybe it's just too young and too early to be the default. It, it takes time for things to change. Yeah, same here at Michigan State. I noticed like a lot of their studies, for example, variable depth in the green, bottom green construction, it really took a while for people to adapt it. They need, you know, research backing it up before it goes into mainstream. And it, it's been there for quite some time. And with so, that's that's how it works. And with MLSN, um, because MLSN is uh, kind of a data mining project and a, and a logic project. It's, a, it's a, an approach based on logic, but then we're really testing it mm -hmm. with everybody that's using it. And it, so far, I'm still not aware of a case where it doesn't work. So we're talking about thousands of trials of MLSN and it just works. But what I'm really interested in, and this is something that, we really want to be watching out for. And I don't want to have blinders on just thinking that MLSN is great. MLSN works perfectly. It couldn't possibly fail. I want to be really aware and try to keep, um, keep myself open to the idea that there may be cases where MLSN doesn't work or it's making some under recommendation of nutrients that would really, um, be required, which is why I was so interested in your 
project. I'm so glad that you spend all this time to talk with me about it. And I'm so glad that it's ongoing and we might find things from this. And then there's other there. The key thing is just to be very observant and see where does it fail? Where does it break down? Because MLSN is something that is dynamic. Mm -hmm. I think that's a word that you used before. Uh, um, MLSN is dynamic and it's meant to be updated. It already has been updated and it's going to be updated again. And we just keep, uh, keep this as a modern method for soil test interpretation, something that works well in the modern era. I've got another comment I or question I want to uh, answer. This is from Aldo B. Any thoughts on ion exchange resin method for turf grass? Is it reliable or not calibrated enough? Great question. Uh, I actually had one chapter in my PhD dissertation, which is looking at ion exchange resins. Um, so that's an article that you should be able to download from my website. Um, if you if you search my name and uh, ion exchange resin, you can probably find that. The answer is it's not particularly well calibrated for turf grass. And what we mean, or what I mean when I'm saying it's not well calibrated, I mean we don't know what to do with the numbers. So you could get, let's say we're looking at potassium, and you could... Um, get back a flux because ion exchange resins uh, are measuring a flux which is um, a movement of an ion or absorption of an ion a rate that's happening over time and that's uh, theoretically very very attractive because that's the way nutrients are taken up from the soil by roots so they're definitely done as a flux not as a concentration so ion exchange resins theoretically have a lot of advantages to really look at availability and uh, something that more closely matches what the roots would see. However, the data are unusable. You, you can't make a fertilizer recommendation, either a rate or a yes or no, uh, do we need to apply this or not recommendation. You can't make that based on ion exchange resin data because it's not calibrated so that's the problem the second problem is it takes a bit more time to do the testing and because it takes time to do the testing there are a number of advantages to that such as it might be more realistic if you're relating that to what roots would be seeing however considering that it's not calibrated and that time uh, lab time uh relates to money and cost of the test it's likely going to be inefficient in terms of cost uh, related to the benefit so i really like it as research tools if i if i want to study it for research i would love to be working with ion exchange resins um, however for practical use for making fertilizer recommendations um, i would not use it today and I might use it in the future if it becomes more calibrated. And Aldo has a comment letting us know, which I think there's, yeah, I, I might have had an inkling of this. It says, lawn care gurus are making a killing selling ion exchange resin soil testing to homeowners. Ha ha. Well, um, 
I think it's an easy one to sell because there are a number of theoretical um, justifications for why ion exchange resins are so attractive. And the main one being that nutrient uptake is a flux, nutrient movement in the soils is a flux, and flux is the, the movement of something across uh, to an area. So we define the area, and then we define what's moving, and we define the time. So you, you think about nutrients moving into a root over time, that is nutrient uptake. So the ion exchange resins are able to mimic that. Theoretically, it's great, but you can't do anything with it. So the, the recommendations should be very crude. Um, and of course, I'm sure people do this and then they say, well, we have a proprietary method or something. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't looked into it very much, but I'm just not aware there's any standard method. So with MLSN, we make it all open source. The code is on GitHub. The data are in the public domain. Anybody that wants to improve on it or 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 find flaws with it, we put it all out there in the in the public domain. It's all on on GitHub, and um, so we do it that way. And uh, I I love Ion Exchange resins. But I'm not, <laughs> and that's not how I would test soils if I'm using it to make a fertilizer recommendation. You ever work with those, Jackie? No. It's my first time hearing them, so hearing it, so kind of like, okay, I need to look that up. Yeah, there's, there's two main ways that you can use it. Um, one way, the, the type that I did was called, uh, well, it was a PRS probe. Uh, P for plant, I think, R for resin, S. I can't even remember. It was, I was a graduate student a long time ago. I forgot what PRS stands for. That was a membrane um, that it was saturated with sodium. So it's like, it's just like a piece of cation exchange paper that was saturated with sodium. And you would wet the soil. You would take a knife and make a... Um, an insertion into the soil and you place that probe in the soil, you would let it stay there for 12 or 24 hours. You, you define the time in which it's in the soil and the soil had been wetted to field capacity. And then you remove it from the soil and then you, um, then you, ex then you extract the, the ions off the cation exchange sites and you measure it. Uh, what was, what was sorbed over time. And of course, it's it's definitely related to the potassium fertilizer treatments. You can, it's very sensitive. You can detect a lot of things, but I don't know how you can make a fertilizer recommendation from it. So that's one way to do it. That's not that would be easy if if you're a lawn care uh, company or if you're a uh, if you're selling this. Maybe you could send this kit to somebody and say, put this in your lawn for 24 hours, and then. Um, put it in a bag and mail it back to me and I will analyze it. That's one way to do it. But the other thing to do is you can just send a soil sample to the lab. You can, uh, and there's little resin balls that have beads that are like, just like little cation, cation exchange um, resins. So they're saturated with something that we don't care about, like sodium, that will easily exchange. And then you put it in the you can take the soil sample so you know we have this much soil we wet it to a certain 
uh, field capacity or generally to a saturated paste type of uh, water content. And then you put that resin in there and you let it sit for a fixed amount of time. And then you pull it out at the lab and you, um, I think you elute, no, you, you, what do you do? You will, you would exchange. Usually I think now that I remember, I think we used ammonium to then saturate it just like you'd use an ammonium acetate extractant Mm -hmm. to remove ions from uh, cation exchange sites in soil. So we used ammonium, I believe, to then remove everything from that resin, and then then you measure what's in the eluate. I, I so, think that the, I think the second um, like your second methodology that you mentioned, I think it's pretty the same. I think um, they thought it in college, but it's for CDC. Now it makes more much more sense with ion exchange resin because it's probably more accurate for CEC, but not individual nutrients saying, oh, you need more KP. Yeah, they have anion exchange resins. There's all kinds of, uh, so you could put in, you, you, it's really cool technology. It's just, um, the problem is those fluxes of nutrients that you can measure with these exchange membranes are not, uh, not related to, turf grass response so how you could use that to make a fertilizer recommendation i don't know but i can see how people can make a killing from it um because i think you could make it seem like a really nice technology and because it's such a nice technology you could charge a relatively high price for it and then uh, i'm sure it doesn't cost so much to make those ion exchange resins so good business Well, this is, this is awesome. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and for being so active in the chat. When I invited Jackie on the show and said, could you please join me to talk about your master's project? Because I knew she was going on to work on football, soccer, football pitches for the World Cup. And I was afraid that uh, she'd be moving away from Turfgrass Nutrition, moving away from MLSN and not have all of this stuff so fresh on her mind uh, and be able to talk about it. So um, with with all the details, remembering exactly how it worked. So I said, can you please join me? And I think this show will be about an hour. Maybe nobody will join us live. I don't know. But uh, I certainly didn't expect this to go on for two hours. So this is wonderful. That is such a cool experiment you did. I'm so glad you did it. And uh, I appreciate everybody joining us live. We'll be here for a couple more minutes in case people have any more questions or want to chat. Um, or if Jackie, if you want to give a shout out to your friends anywhere in the world. <laughs> Tell people where you wrote your thesis, which I think is a genius idea, if you care to share that. I'm going to share my story. So, um, so for my master's, um, so, for, so at the end of my master's, I just need to write my thesis. And that was around December of 2020, December 2020. And every, everything's locked down. I'm just, you know, in my apartment. And I need to write this thesis, and it's it's winter here in Michigan, so I got this great idea. Why not go back in the Philippines in the midst of pandemic? So yeah, so um, I talked to my advisor, I talked to him, said, 
I'm just going to write my thesis anyway. Why not go back and enjoy the warm weather, be with my family, have the support system. So from December 2020 up until May 2021, I was in the Philippines. I was, and I finished my writing my thesis. I came back here in the, here in the U.S. and finished my master's degree. That and I, when I heard that, I thought, did you get? Did, I, I asked you, did you get stuck in the Philippines? Did you get like, like you couldn't travel or something? And you said, no, I, I planned it that way. And I thought, wow, that is genius to escape the Michigan winter and go to a tropical country where there's palm trees and sunshine and warm breezes and uh, tropical fruits and all the, and, and with your family and support system there. What a great way to go write your thesis. So we can... I have a business idea for you. Write a self-help book for graduate students of how to how to successfully write your thesis in a tropical country. It would be a could could be a bestseller. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I am not seeing any more questions or comments and uh, I think two hours is enough I'm this will be released as a podcast it will be on YouTube available for watching from right now and I think that if there's any more questions people can contact me I'll put up your Twitter one more time which is um, Jack of all turf so follow Jackie on Twitter. I'm sure you can reach her there if you have some questions about um, MLSN or about that experiment or about the World Cup, which that's pretty awesome. I think that's that's exciting. So yeah. we will uh, we'll keep working on this. I'm going to be back in touch with you, Jackie, to ask about uh, how how that goes at the field day with the ongoing now in year four of this experiment and uh, see how those uh, traffic and phosphorus and potassium treatments are working. So thank everybody for joining us. Thank you especially to Jackie Guevara for joining and talking about this fascinating MLSN experiment. Yeah, I, I will, had a lot of fun. Well, it was, I think I had more fun because I really enjoy talking about MLSN. So uh, seeing this type of experiment, seeing this type of experiment done uh, and getting such interesting results is, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And uh, that you can write your thesis so clearly and make those results so clear. It was, it was just a cool project. So uh, I've heard people referring to it uh, as like it, it gives some validation to MLSN to actually research it at the university under such controlled conditions. So thank you. Very good. All right. I'm going to end the stream. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jackie. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.